It's kind of sad to say, but I enjoy when Gary leaves. <laughs> because then they let me preach. You can't leave too much, Barbara. Uh, it takes me a long time to get a sermon ready. I want to talk to you guys about three things this morning. Three things only. We're going to talk about ducks. We're going to talk about weasels. And we're going to talk about technical support. These three things. Now, what in the world do these three things have in relation to each other, much less what do they have in relation to the Bible? Well, these three things, all in their own unique way, they relate to one of the most important things that we can know as Christians. How to remain faithful all the way to the end. And that's the subject of our study this morning. How can a Christian remain faithful? If you can remember, these three things will be much more likely to make it to heaven. And I think that's a very good thing. This is important because most of us probably know it wouldn't take very long for any one of us to think of someone that we know who once was a faithful Christian and now no longer is. Or we can't even think of ourselves. Maybe we consider ourselves to be faithful Christians. And we can imagine that there could be circumstances in which that we maybe would be a little bit less faithful than we currently are. Scriptures illustrate the importance of finishing well very often. I want to start this morning in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 22. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 22. Jesus speaking here, he says, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. And again in Acts chapter 20, if you'd like to turn there, Acts chapter 20 and verse 24. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy. 1 Corinthians, Paul says here as well, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 through 8. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7 through 8. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let us lay aside, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1, let us, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And finally, Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10, the last part of that verse, be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Again, Revelation 2, 10. The life of a Christian is over and over again illustrated as an endurance race, a long race, not a sprint, uh, not a drag race. It's a long race. And with a special focus on how we finish, that we finish, and that we not give up until we're done. 
How sad would it be to train for years and years to run for a marathon? Boston Marathon, that's a big goal in my life. For many people, I went running yesterday, I, I, I might have ran a half a mile, if that. That's, that's probably rounding up a little bit. And um, asked my wife, I, I thought I was going to die. Um, but if I were to imagine spending so much of my life training for the Boston Marathon, 26 point whatever miles, just to give up at the very end, the finish line is right here, and I've worked for years, maybe devoted my entire life to this point, and then I see the finish line there and I just quit. How sad would that be? That would be terribly sad, and I would feel like, uh, like I've wasted my entire life. If that was me, how much more sad then would it be for a Christian to devote his or her life to Christ, doing many great and marvelous things throughout their life, only to give up before the race is over? It doesn't matter how many good things we do in our lives if we don't finish well. So that's the topic of our study this morning, remaining faithful to the end. This is just as important as starting to begin with. So what does remaining faithful have to do with ducks? Weasels and technical support. We'll start at the end. Technical support. If you were to tell me to imagine one of the worst jobs out there, I would tell you I would probably describe technical support. I'd have to be on the phone all day long. I would have to deal with people who are often angry and frustrated and uh, stupid or ignorant or confused, and that is, those things are not a good combination. You know, talking with people on the phone who are angry at you is not fun. And you're paid to not hang up on them. You know, if someone's just calling you, you can hang, you can hang up on them. But if you're paid to help them, uh, it's, it's a different matter. So you have to deal with them. And it turns out a lot of people agree with me that technical support is not very fun, namely the people who work in technical support. Uh, to illustrate this, in a normal company, in a normal business, if it has, say, 10 employees, one and maybe two of those employees would quit during any given year. So there's a little bit of turnover in, in a typical average business. With a technical support company, it could be as high if a technical support company has 10 employees. Can you guess how many of those 10 will quit? 9, 10, 13. <laughs> I'm not exaggerating either. They have a 130% turnover rate. They only had 10 people to, to begin with, and throughout that year they have to hire 13 people. It's a terrible job. It's a terrible job, but some people do it. If I was running a technical support company, this would be a big problem to me because, and it is for them, because they spend literally millions of dollars hiring and finding new people and training them and getting them up to speed, and then that guy or that girl just quits like the week they start. And uh, it's terrible. Um, So they have to find a way to fix this. And I'm going somewhere with this, so stick with me. In light of this, some call centers, they figured out a way to reduce the number of people who quit drastically. And the really interesting thing is that this is something that Jesus and his apostles did and talked about regularly. People were hired, uh, before people were hired, when they come in for the interview process, they were warned beforehand about how difficult the job would be. They were told 
listen, you're going to interact with some, some pretty stupid people, and you're going to interact with some pretty angry people, and you can't hang up on them, and the pay is kind of meager. Uh, you're not getting paid a whole lot. Um, you're going to have long hours, and you can only have certain holidays, um, and there's strict on-time policies, and they're actually made to listen to a sample call that's, like, particularly bad, and they have to listen to this guy yelling at a guy and being grumpy and being cantankerous, and they have to listen to all this, and they're asked, is this, are you sure this is something that you can handle? Is this something that you would be able to do day in and day out. In doing this, it's called a realistic job preview. Doing this, they drastically reduce the number of people who quit. Now, some of you might be thinking how this works. Okay, well, it, it works simply by scaring away the people like me who would hate the job to begin with, right? You know, the people who, who would be not suited for it, they would just leave before they're offered the job or before, before they're hired. But that's not actually the case. They did the same thing to people who were already hired. They said, wow, this is working so well, basically. So they did the same thing to people who were already hired. And you know what? The people who were already hired who weren't warned beforehand, they were far less likely as well to quit. So this is very interesting to me because it helps all people cope better when they encounter the difficulties of the role. Just knowing for my own sake, my own mental health, what is normal and what is to be expected will do a lot to immunize me against shock and disappointment. If I go in to my new technical support job and I'm expecting you know, to help nice people get their computers working and set up their printers and stuff, um, wow, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling great about it, I'm helping people, and then what I get are you know, grumpy, cantankerous people yelling at me all day long, that would be a big shock to me. It wasn't what I was expecting. My expectations are here, and what I got was way down here. This shock would cause me to be disappointed, get discouraged, and eventually quit. So these businesses, they immunize their employees against this shock. This is what you should expect, and this is normal, and it's okay when you encounter this type of thing. You see the application, don't you? The reason people quit the technical support job is the very same reason that many people quit Christianity, especially new Christians. Their, expect, their expectations were not properly set, and they got disappointed. They went in expecting one thing, and they got something else. Some people, when they come to Christ, they expect all of their worldly cares and all their problems to just melt away right away. They never expect to have another single problem ever again. And spiritually speaking, if you're faithful, that is the case. Every spiritual problem will be taken away by the blood of Christ. And you have a great reward waiting for you in heaven. I don't want to downplay that at all. But in reality, physically speaking, your problems in this life might actually get worse for a while. If you become a Christian expecting things to be easy, you're going to be in for a big shock. And that's why a lot of our new brothers and sisters in Christ fall away. They weren't, they weren't told what to expect. Jesus himself said some pretty shocking things. If you're still in Matthew chapter 10, we'll look at verse 34. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. This is Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, and he's saying, don't think I came to bring peace on earth. This was a pretty big shocker to the people who were following him, most likely. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. 
And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus here mentions war, and he mentions strife, and he mentions setting uncomfortable priorities, and he mentions dying to self. And among other things, he was giving those who would consider following him a pretty good job preview. What it's going to be like to follow him. He was setting their expectations. Again, in Matthew chapter 5, if you'd like to turn back just a few pages, Matthew chapter 5, and starting in verse 10. Blessed are, are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So there it is again, persecution. If you're righteous, you can expect to be persecuted. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus doesn't just leave it at the bad thing. He says, but here's a good reward. It's worth it. The kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you. So we're adding to persecutions, not only that, but revilings. I don't think I've ever been reviled, but it sounds like something that's not very good. And say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Why? For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So here Jesus is again warning of persecutions, revilings, evil things happening to you. But he also points out that this is normal and this is to be expected. God's people have always been persecuted. God's people have always been harassed and and, uh, mistreated by people in the world. That's nothing new. When that happens to you, it's okay. It's normal. You should expect it. And you're in good company. Not only that, but you have a reward waiting for you because you've endured. Luke chapter 13 and verse 23. Luke chapter 13 and verse 23. One said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? And he said to them, Strive. Strive to enter through the narrow gate, for many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. The key word that I want to focus on here is strive. This comes from a really interesting Greek word, and I'm not one to usually, you know, be a Greek nerd or anything, but the Greek word here for strive is really interesting. It's agonizomai, where we get a similar English word, agonize. Jesus is painting a picture of the Christian life, the one that leads to heaven, as sometimes agonizing, sometimes hard. But our brother Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 and verse 17 and 18, Romans 8, 17 and 18, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So our sufferings isn't for nothing, it's for an end. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So while being a Christian in this life may cause us some sorrow and strife and even agony, the flip side to that is that whatever relatively minor things that we suffer and we experience in this life will not even be able to be compared to what is to come, to the rewards that are waiting for us in heaven if we remain faithful as his children, steadfast to the end. So be encouraged. You're not alone in your sufferings. Others have been where you are. And they made it through. First Peter chapter 5, verse 9, Peter tells us to be steadfast in the faith. But how, Peter? How can we be steadfast in the faith? He gives us an answer. First Peter chapter 5, verse 9. Knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. You're not alone. This is normal. It's okay. You'll make it. 
So how can a Christian remain faithful? Having our expectations set properly. So that when trials come our way, we know that we're not alone in them, that it's normal, and that uh, Christ did a lot and his apostles did a lot to inoculate us against these times, against these situations, so that we won't become discouraged, we won't be shocked, and we won't fall away. If you're taking notes, here's point two. Weasels. Weasels. Now, when I say weasels, I'm not talking about any kind of weasel. I'm talking about a particular kind of weasel, the ermine. Has anybody ever heard of an ermine? Three, four, okay, there's a hand waving over here. If you've never seen an ermine, imagine a tiny ferret that's completely white, or almost completely white. Very soft, very cute. Look up a picture on Google later, you'll, you'll, uh, you'll die. Um, apparently, their fur in the past, years past, I don't think people do it much anymore, but years past, their fur was highly valued. It's very soft and cool looking. Um, so hunters would go out and hunt the ermine and remove their fur from them. But what hunters would do to catch the ermine is what was interesting. They wouldn't really have to chase them down and hunt them down very much. They would just find where the ermine lives, and they would surround, as the story goes, they would surround their home with dirt and mud and muck, dirty things. And when the ermine was chased by the dogs or whatever was chasing them, uh, the ermine would come to his burrow, and instead of crossing the path of the dirt, he would allow himself to be caught by the hunter. The ermine valued the purity of its coat even above its own life. I think the application here again is abundantly obvious and very profound. This brings to my mind Revelation chapter 3. If you'd like to turn there with me, Revelation chapter 3, the church in Sardis. The church there had a number of serious problems, very serious problems, but we read of a few people who valued their purity before God. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 1, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. So here we find the church at Sardis in a not very good condition. But we find that there are a few bright spots. Not all is lost. There are a few bright spots. Verse 4, you have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father, before his angels. Can you imagine what it would be like to have Jesus Christ, the Lord of all the earth, to say that, Vincent, he's mine, he's, he's on my side, I know him, to the father, or Andrea, or Mylan, or Fred, or you put in your own name there. Can you imagine what it would be like For Jesus Christ, the one who died for us, to say, this one is mine. Purity is important to God. It was only those who had kept their garments pure, spiritually speaking, that Jesus was willing to confess before the Father. 
If purity is important to God, it should be important to us. If we are to remain faithful, we need to value purity. We need to have a high premium on this. But what is purity? What is it? Purity is to be clean. Purity is to be unstained by sin. Purity is to be blameless. It is to be innocent. It is to be free from corrupt wishes and desires and thoughts. Purity indicates a genuineness of character. It indicates sincerity. And there's an interesting thing uh, about the word sincerity as well. There's an interesting story behind it. It reportedly comes from two Latin words. And if anybody speaks Spanish, you'll notice the, the similarity. Sine, or sin, means without. And sera means wax, without wax. So to be sincere means to be without wax. It doesn't make a lot of sense without explaining it. But in ancient times, what unscrupulous people would do is if they have a nice statue or something, they would uh, a lot of times have flaws or nicks and holes in them. They would fill it with wax so that something that was flawed or something that was wrong or broken would appear flawless and perfect. So something that appears one way but in actuality is another way. That would be to be not without wax or not sincere. Or also, uh, when someone was building a building back in the day, they had concrete as well, but concrete was very expensive, so they would add a filler. They would add wax to the filler. It wouldn't be quite as strong, but it would be cheaper. But when the sun came and beat on the house or the building, it would melt, and the structure would be compromised. It would even could collapse and kill people. So for someone in ancient times to guarantee that this is sincere... It's a very strong, very important thing in that day. Sincerity. Without wax. We should be a waxless people. Not like earwax or anything like that, but spiritually, we should be waxless. We should be just exactly what we appear to be. Genuine and honest and without hypocrisy through and through. That's one big portion of what it means to be pure. There should be no winking at sin. And you all know what it means to wink at something, right? Like if I were to tell you, Everybody, my birthday's coming up, and no, you don't have to get me that big, expensive, shiny thing that I've had my eye on for the past year and I've been telling you all about. No, please, don't, uh, don't get me that thing at all. Wink, 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 you know. That's what it means to wink at something. But when we wink at sin, we're saying one thing or doing one thing. Uh, we're saying one thing about sin, but actually meaning or doing another. So we can't wink at sin if we're to be pure. I really shouldn't be watching this, but, you know, it's not a big deal. I can handle it. I really shouldn't be wearing this out in public, but I'm on a sports team. I might get a scholarship. I'm near water. Uh, everyone else is wearing it, so it's okay. I really shouldn't be forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, but I only do it every once in a while. God will understand. I really shouldn't be entertaining the thoughts, thinking about, and looking at the things that I'm looking at and thinking about. But, you know, I'm not really hurting anyone. So it's okay. It's not okay. For the child of God that wants to go to heaven, that is not okay. There can be no winking at sin at all. The child of God who wants to go to heaven does not play in the spiritual mud. The child of God that wants to go to heaven keeps himself pure because they value being pure. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8. So how can a Christian remain faithful then? How can a Christian remain faithful? They value purity. The child of God that wants to go to heaven, just like the ermine, just like the little weasel. They, they get a bad rap sometimes, but uh, we, we can learn a lot from little weasels. 
value purity above even your own life. They refuse to be stained with even a little bit of sin. Ducks. Ducks. There's a a funny story about a family of ducks. These ducks, they lived in a little duck town, and every duck Sunday, they waddled across town to their little duck church. When they got there, they waddled down the aisle, uh, down to their pew of choice, because all ducks have their favorite pew. The little duck preacher opened his little duck Bible and preached his little duck heart out. He preached about how God designed them to fly, about how God wants them to soar wherever they go like eagles. And the duck preacher got no small amount of duck amens from his duck audience. And when the sermon was over and service was done, all of the duck families got up from their little duck pews and waddled down out of the church building, down the aisle, down the street, waddled all the way back home. What's the point? Complacency, self-satisfaction, can strangle out any desire to make application or to grow. Being happy with where you are and what you're doing, thinking you're good enough, can trick us can trick us into feeling like we're already spiritual. We're already there. We've already apprehended. We're already very close with God. This complacency is a dangerous trap for us Christians because it's hard to tell if we've fallen into it or not. Because by definition, when we're complacent, we are satisfied. We think we are good enough. But like these little ducks, when the sermon is over, because we think we're okay... We fail to make application. We, we fail to see any major areas in our lives where, yeah, we could, we could improve. Sometimes we don't realize it until it's too late. Our brethren in Laodicea, if you're in Revelation chapter 3, we'll continue there. Revelation chapter 3, our brethren in Laodicea are a good, bad example of complacency. Complacency. Revelation chapter 3, we'll start in verse 7. And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot, so then, because you are lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Here we see a complacent congregation, complacent people described perfectly and very succinctly. Lukewarm. They're not really for this. They're not really against that. They're just sort of there. And we also see how God feels about this. It makes him so sick. Complacency makes God, our God in heaven, the one who died for us, so sick that it makes him want to throw up. That isn't the saddest part of this, though. The worst part of this story is that the congregation was completely oblivious to the fact that they were complacent. And not only that, on top of that, to compound it even more, they thought that they were doing really, really good. They thought they were doing really well. Verse 17. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have needed nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. 
I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, so that you may see as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. And here is the prescription, the heavenly prescription, to cure complacency from the great physician. Therefore, be zealous and repent. I mentioned how difficult it is sometimes to realize if we're complacent. But here's a quick self-test. Raise your hand. Now, don't, raise your, don't actually raise your hand, okay? <laughs> I don't want to embarrass anybody. But in your mind, okay, and be honest with yourself because you know, nobody's going to know except you and God, and you both already know. Raise your hand in your mind again if every once in a while, sometimes, on occasion, you feel like you're doing enough for the Lord. honest with yourself do you from time to time just smile and say yeah I'm doing enough for the Lord if that thought or anything similar to it sometimes crosses your mind then you may be complacent Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3 describes complacency a different way the Hebrews writer says in chapter 2 in verse 3 How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? This is what complacency is as well. It's neglect of our salvation. Can you imagine getting a new car and never changing the oil? I know someone who kind of did that. And if you do that for long enough, it's not going to be a car for very long. It's going to be a paperweight that you have to get hauled away. Neglect can cause something to no longer be that thing. And if we neglect our salvation, we can lose our salvation. One person described it this way, or similar to this, complacency is a spiritual disease. It saps our our energy, it dulls our attitudes, and causes a drain on the brain. The first symptom is this, satisfaction. Satisfaction with things as they are. And like water, complacent people follow the easiest course, that is, downhill. Have you ever seen water flow uphill? How can a Christian remain faithful? We can't be like the little ducks, unable to see our own spiritual deficiencies. Satisfied with where we are, hearing sermon after sermon, and going back home just the way we were when we initially left. Thinking good enough is actually good enough is not good enough. Our Father in Heaven, our Savior, who died for us, will not be pleased with good enough. We should also remember the little weasel who valued purity even over her own life. And the technical support company who uh, set expectations properly and they were able to prevent people from quitting. They were able to set expectations so that when tough times came, they could recognize those tough times for what they were. Normal. Expected. Okay. So if we do that, we will also be less susceptible to discouragement and falling away. Brothers and sisters, remaining faithful and finishing well is very important to to us Christians. If we want to make it to heaven, then remaining faithful is vitally important. And finishing is just as important as getting started in the first place. Can we help you as a brother and sister in Christ to get back on track, to continue to serve God with fervency, with zeal, with desire, Can we help you 
as someone who has never obeyed the gospel to obey the gospel? Can we help you to understand what your Bible says you must do in order to be saved? If we can help you in this matter, please let us know as we together stand and sing for your encouragement.